Sarah, it's a reaction video. Our first ever, I think. Another commenter said, he's the only man in history of pro cycling that never cheated in any way, shape or form. Okay. That's a ridiculous comment. Who wrote that? <laughs> Just a few stupid comments. This is probably the most popular comment that came in. Number one was probably Anthony did a great job interviewing him. Second, that, that was my ma. <laughs> Maybe Greg and Lance reconcile one day. For example, Lance might invite Greg on a hunting trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been, I think, almost 400,000 people have watched the Greg LeMond video on YouTube. Another 170,000 have watched it over on Twitter or X or whatever the cool kids are calling it. So we wanted to go through some of the comments in advance of our Greg LeMond part two video, which is coming in the next month or so. Yeah, I went through absolutely every single comment. How many comments? <laughs> Quite interesting. There? About 1,500, like over all of the videos. And I didn't even touch Twitter. This is just on YouTube. So it took me a full day. People are very funny. Like it, we'll go through them, but there was everything from we love Greg to we hate Greg. And there was absolutely everything in between. So <laughs> Joe Rogan has a great quote and he said, uh, not to read YouTube comments because LeBron isn't in your YouTube comments. Yeah, Michael Jordan's not in there giving out from his keyboard. <laughs> so you do have to take YouTube comments with a pinch of salt because it's, I don't know, I love the idea of maybe it's a place where we can try and build some community, but there's a lot of negativity in YouTube comments generally. Our comments actually aren't that bad by and large. No, I agree. And what I will say about YouTube, and it's like any of the platforms, anyone who really goes to town, who is going wild, coming down on someone like a ton of bricks, you pop into their profile, nada. They never put anything up. They don't even have a picture up. It's an absolute keyboard warrior kind of platform. So um, yeah, that is kind of interesting. Most of the people who had positive comments, you can tell that they're really engaging with cycling and know all about it. So just an interesting thing that I noticed. Yeah, I like to think of our YouTube comments as a, not an echo chamber, like a safe space within YouTube because we don't get the same toxic community inside in our comments. I actually think it's quite an uplifting space in general. So yeah, I haven't read if, these comments. Even so. if we don't agree with them. I mean, we did get a lot of comments over our newbie questions videos that I personally don't agree with, but keep them coming in. Keep them coming in. Love having the conversation. So I haven't read any of these comments. So <laughs> I am excited to hear these. So go on, crack in. Okay. Well, it would have been completely amiss of me not to cover some of the comments that came in about how Greg Lamont got the listeners and the viewers in to cycling. This is probably the most popular comment that came in. Number one was probably Anthony did a great job interviewing him. Second to that, that was my ma. <laughs> second to that was how Greg basically was the inspiration for a load of youth riders getting in. Christian writes in, he said, I was about eight or nine years old and I started watching the Tour de France with my dad back in the 80s. I remember Greg vividly, fantastic rider and loads more like that. This is a really cool one I loved. Lance could not destroy destroy him. Hino could not stop him. Even a gun could not kill him. This man is unstoppable. That should be the title for his uh, autobiography. <laughs> 
I absolutely love that. That was probably our top most liked comment, 195 comments and like a shed loads of replies under that. He's like the Terminator. Well, so I just finished recording the Greg LeMond part two and I opened the Greg LeMond part two talking about the comment that we received most or the feedback I'd received most anecdotally from people on the street or even I'm bumping into people at the gym. They're like, oh, I listened to the Greg LeMond interview. The comment I got time and time again was... Greg got me into cycling. And that's what I started the podcast with Greg, part two, talking about. And he was really humbled by that. What a legacy. It's so, so cool. This guy, Martin, writes, the dude won his first tour with his team and director working against him, colluding, possibly bribing other teams to isolate him and even discussions about sabotaging his bike. I heard that he no longer trusted anyone to the point his wife and father started coming and bringing his food because he didn't trust the chefs. Then he wins his second tour after being shot in the back with a shotgun and a third tour win after that. How can he not admire the hell out of him? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that sums up his like career there it's funny that he had to have his wife and his dad come in to kind of cook from it they were a little bit afraid at that time that I didn't know that I I haven't confirmed that with Greg that that happened but I have heard that been mentioned I don't know if they were overblown rumours but there was a lot of team infighting especially for his first Tour de France win and those you know Central Europeans very passionate about their cycling so and an American coming in and kind of, you know, steamrolling past everyone. and Yeah, like yeah. English speaker as well, kind of first English speaker to win the Tour de France. And we see in Team Sky in later years, English speakers are not typically liked in cycling. At not least they welcome. weren't then mm. coming into a European dominated sport. So yeah, maybe it seems plausible, I wouldn't say. Yeah, what my big memory is of the Tour de France that we were at on Alpe West that time when Sky came by, every other team, every single person on the side of the road was shouting them on, no matter who you were actually supporting, what nationality. But Sky got booed off the side of that Postal mountain. got the same. And okay. I don't know if it's a, I don't think it's a, Maybe it's a drugs thing. I don't know. Because Team Sky had a lot of stuff around dodgy doctors and asthma medication. And that filters back to the fans as well. But I also think no one likes a team that's so dominant in any sport. Yeah, but the booing. This was insane. eggs at the car. <laughs> it was. It was crazy. Okay, here's a really interesting comment that I hadn't thought about because I kind of missed Sagan's era. But A.N. Snark said, Le Mans musculature in his Tour de France days was pretty much what Sagan's was in his day. What do you think of that? Riders Two different have- riders though, right? Two different types of riders. Sagan was a sprinter. Well, Sagan, uh, Sagan wasn't anything. Sagan was everything. He was not a grand tour rider, but he was everything else. Uh, sprinter classics one day. But I think that's more of a comment on riders generationally changed physique totally from, you know, we look at Vindegaard in that interview, Greg LeMond calls him, uh, I think he said he has the physique of a prisoner of war. And that's true, not just of Vindegaard. Vindegaard is maybe the extreme of how lean the cyclists are gone. But you look, Roglic is super lean, Ben O'Connor is super lean. Like, look, I'm naming the whole peloton. Any, everyone is super lean at World Tour now. That wasn't the case in Le Mans area. You look at Le Mans, who won the Tour. You look at Sean Kelly, who won the Vuelta. These are big strapping lads, more akin to what a classics rider looks like now. So yeah, I think it's a fair observational comment. The physique's changed. The physique has definitely changed. Roadman, I know how serious you take your goal setting, whether they're fitness or life-related goals. If you're looking for a powerful ally to support you on this journey, look no further than Huel. 
Huel has become my secret weapon for when I don't have time to prepare a balanced meal, ensuring I get the nutrition I need without sacrificing time or taste. Plus, it stops me from reaching for the takeaway menu. I always throw a bottle into my backpack when I'm heading into the city to work and it stops me eating croissants and junk food, you know, just generally stuff that don't support my training goals. It's handy and it's nutritious and it's over 22 grams of protein. Huel's perfect for athletes who don't have time to cook or prepare food before a training session. It's convenient, nutritious fuel at your fingertips, ensuring you hit your daily fueling needs for your session. Huel Ready to Drink has over 26 vitamins and minerals in every single bottle. You're getting a whopping 175 health benefits. Plus, they're all natural ingredients, stuff like topeka, sunflower seed, coconut, and more. And the best part... The flavors are amazing. Eight mouth-watering flavors. Iced coffee is in my backpack at the moment. You can get your hands on Huel ready to drink directly to your home just by going to huel.com forward slash roadman. That's Huel, H-U-E-L dot com forward slash roadman. Okay, so let's move on to the relationship that everyone wanted to hear about during the interview. And that, of course, is Lamont's relationship with the baddie, the big baddie, the bad wolf, Lance Armstrong. <laughs> I like Armstrong, but no one else likes Armstrong. So I'm on my own on that one. Yeah, everybody hates Lance Armstrong. Have you got your Live Strong armband on? Oh, at the I love the podcast as well. And, you know, look, it was a dirty year. Uh, I don't believe that if everyone was clean or if everyone was doped, maybe Armstrong wasn't the winner, but he was the guy who got ahead and won seven tour. I, I just think my whole problem with that whole era is for seven editions of the Tour de France, there's no winner. You can't have no winner for seven editions. And nobody stepped forward, like in second place, third place, fourth place, to say, oh, I rightfully should have been the winner because they, they were, were all dirty. Most likely dirty as well. So, yeah, it's a weird time in history. And. Maybe I'm a little more forgiven than other people. Yeah, I think so. Okay, we've got one comment here. Maybe Greg and Lance reconcile one day. For example, Lance might invite Greg on a hunting trip. <laughs> <laughs> Fun aside, great interview. And that's obviously in reference to that time that Greg's brother-in-law shot him on a hunting trip. I don't know. I think that apparently in We Do and on the podcast, Lance, Hinkapi, anybody, when they speak with each other about Lamont, it's always done in like a very respectful manner and that they're kind of like, oh, I don't you know, know, I think Lance hates Lamont. Really? I just yeah. never hear him really dissing him. Whereas I think Lamont like absolutely shoots from the hip. No, I think that's pulls both no ways. punches. Right. Okay. Yeah, okay. Both so ways. I, think, like, I think Lance would invite him on a hunting trip. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I'm not sure Greg would accept, but I think Lance would invite him. One of the comments said, thanks for this interview. It's always inspiring to learn from Greg's championship career and personal journey. I'm ashamed to say that I wrote off Lamont's words of warning about Armstrong's cycling accomplishments as bitterness and envy from Greg towards a new American cycling champ that was eclipsing him. How wrong I was and we all were in wanting to believe in Armstrong's story. Greg Lamont held to his convictions. Eventually Armstrong's lies and world collapse around him and Greg was proven to be right all along. Clearly it was a tough time for Greg, but in the end he was vindicated and it all only added to his greatness and integrity. Yeah, I don't know if it did add to his greatness. This was like something I picked up with him in the second interview. It's like, why? Like, why take this fight? Why, you know, even if you're right, like we talk about this in a different context all the time where I'm saying to you, like your only goal when you're on a spin is to get home safe. 
it's not about being right in a road traffic situation because you can be right and still run over. So would you prefer to be right and sit in the hospital with a broken collarbone or to be wrong and get back home safely? I kind of feel the same around Le Monde. It took such a toll on his mental health, on his family, on his business relationships. Yes, he's right, but would he not prefer to be just wrong or silent and not have that damage? Well, I I don't know. I, I, I do really admire Lamond for this because Lance silenced so many people and terrified them. I mean, we have a very famous case in Ireland, which is close to our heart for the uh, masseuse or the Emma, you, O'Reilly. Emma O'Reilly, who's you know, her whole career, her, everything about her was basically taken apart by Lance. Yeah, it was she one of the worst parts of the whole Armstrong thing. Yeah. yeah, and I, I just feel that maybe Lamont kind of said, you know what, I'm not going to be bullied by this guy. I'm going to speak out about it. Yeah, he did lose out financially in loads of other ways. But yeah, I think fair play to him for kind of standing up to him. For the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into. Just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike, Adam, it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio. And if I have an error between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. The Adam is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25%. If only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Watopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Watt Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com now and check out their full range. Roadman, 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour. That's the minimum recommended intake for your rides. Most people don't know that. Focusing on nutrition and fueling can make or break your performance, but it can be really difficult to find a high carb source that tastes great and isn't really tough on your digestive system. I've been cut out, if you know what I mean, a few times with GI stomach issues, and that's because of highly processed bars and gels. That's why I love Veloforte. These products never give me any gastro problems. That's because they're packed with real fruit, natural electrolytes, and they taste absolutely great. I love the chews, the Mela apple flavored chew. It won the Great Taste Award. These chews are 100% natural. They're made with the purest electrolytes. They're a game changer. For me, it's something with the texture. It's a different texture from a gel, and it's so welcome at the later stages of a ride. I've got an amazing offer for you to go and check out for yourself because I want you to test this product out. If you head over to veloforte.com and you use the code ROADMAN30 at checkout, you're going to get 30% off your order. That's ROADMAN30 and you're even welcome to share this code with your club or friends or teammates so they can check these out too. 
Okay, the next comment says... He's very jealous of Lance's seven tours win. He's jealous of his woman. He's jealous of his children. He's jealous of Lance's looks. He's jealous of Lance's money and his fame. <laughs> oh, no, I don't know. Like, I don't agree on a lot of that. Jealous of his tours. Like, Le Mans won the tour a bunch of times himself. You can maybe level that criticism at someone who hasn't won the tour. Jealous of his woman. That's so like, weird. Like, Greg LeMond and his wife are the ultimate team. Yeah, Armstrong's been divorced. Yeah. You know, he's... You know, yeah, like Le Monde and his wife just seem inseparable like, through the whole thing. Yeah. Jealous of his money? I don't know, maybe. I'm sure Greg has done okay financially out of all this. I, when I chatted to him, it looked like he was in a pretty baller past. <laughs> so he has his own brand, bikes. I don't know. Look, you could speculate as to all day long, but I, don't, I don't see the jealousy motive at all. I'm with you on that one. Okay, let's move on a little bit. And some of the craziest revelations from the podcast, I think that really got everybody talking, everybody chatting and kind of everybody being like, oh, did he just say that? Was all of the chat about motor doping. I have to say, <laughs> I was a bit, uh, reflecting on the interview, I could have maybe pushed back harder on that motor dope and stuff. It's it's hard though. It's Greg LeMond and it's, you know, we're further down the line. I remember interviewing Hincapie and I'll hold my hands up and say it was a total fanboy interview because I hadn't interviewed anyone at that stature at that time. And it was like, oh my God, don't take anything wrong because you're interviewing Hincapie, someone I grew up watching. Now, LeMond is not someone I grew up watching, but I was well aware as a cycling fan of his stature in the sport. So I was expecting him maybe to just, you know, give out the kind of key message stuff I'd heard in interviews in the past. And when he started talking about motor doping and especially naming riders that he suspected of motor doping, like Chris Froome, at that moment, with the benefit of hindsight, I would have pushed back a little harder. But hey, how I didn't. Yeah, exactly. And so many people absolutely agreed in the comments with Greg LeMond. And they, I really, a lot of the sentiment was, you know what, I watched that race up on two with Froome and something smelled fishy. That's wild speculation, though. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's, it is fairly crazy. Like, <laughs> in a sport where, I don't know, we've been born so many times where you believe someone is real and it turns out to be a hoax, you know, from Armstrong to Contador to the whole Team Sky revelations. It's happened so many times that we become very sceptical and very distrusting. And then the sport is set up with a really bad incentive system where if you cheat... And you don't get caught, you get untold riches. If you do get caught, you get a four-year holiday and then you come back into the sport like Valverde and you go on and win a world title again and you're still a hero. So it's a very bad incentive system to deter people from cheating. So when you talk about cheating, you know, we've normal doping. And then with the emergence of motors, it's a possibility. We know riders did use motors, but to say a specific rider in a specific instance, unless you know something that, I don't or we don't. It's wild speculation. Well, one of the writers does agree. A few of them, as I said, do. And they write, the biggest evidence is Froome always attacked sitting on the bike. If you have a motor, you can never stand on the pedals or you lose sync with the motor. The natural way to attack is to stand on the pedals. Froome never did that. He was using a motor, period. That's what this writer, who, writer who wrote says. That? Wicked Pawn 5437. Like in Wicked Pawn's experience, the natural way to attack is standing. 
standing or sitting attacks. They're, they vary massively on your riding style, on the terrain, and even your weight. Like if you look statistically, riders who are 70 kilograms or over accelerate a lot of the time seated, whereas riders under 70 kilograms accelerate standing. You take a rider like Contador, he would accelerate all the time out of the saddle. But we've seen Bradley Wiggins, who almost never got out of the saddle and won the Tour de France. So are we led to believe from Wicked Man 77's comments <laughs> that anyone who accelerated while seated was motor It's ridiculous comments. Okay, here's another one then about Froome. I remember seeing Froome breaking, going into a hairpin on the way up, and then he has an emoji kind of going like this. I've had the break going into a hairpin on the way up. I've never had to break. That's fishy to me. I've never had to break. Hairpins are designed kind of funny though, like because hairpins, you have a little bit of camber downhill before you go uphill. So if you carry speed into a hairpin, like you will have to break. Yeah, well, that's very true. Motor doping is beyond all levels of cheating. Too bad we're still in awe of these fake moments in our sport. I do think that there is a sentiment almost nowadays about that motor doping is worse than blood doping. I think people, yeah. I think you can look at anyone in a club spin and they can say to themselves, oh, well, if I took EPO, I still wouldn't win the Tour de France or I still wouldn't win Tour of Flanders. But if you ask someone in a club spin, like, would you want Tour of Flanders if I gave you a Kawasaki motorbike? They're like, yeah, of course I would. I just drive off. So I think there's a sense of that that you feel like it's just totally cheating that whatever unwritten Omerta code there is, it's totally broken. <laughs> Loosely held Omerta code. Okay, the last one that I will say, it's kind of controversial. Um, this is from the RST 2001. Motor doping engines only need to last 12 seconds to give a pro an advantage to win a race. In Glasgow, Matthew Van der Poel leaving White Van Aert and Pogaccia behind is a good example. Now, I'm not saying MVP did that at all. He rode like a champ, crashed and got back up on his bike like a champ again. But I think that this listener is literally just saying that you just need that like zip to get away from people. That's all you need. You don't need a huge motor that's going to give you 200 watts all day long. You need a motor that's going to give you 10 watts, 15 watts for a very short period of time. But then there's only a certain amount of riders that that's going to help. You know, if you're a, you know, a cat one rider is not going to win the Tour de France on a motor that gives him a 12, like what's a 12 second motor going to give me? You know what I mean? Like I hold on 12 seconds more before I get dropped. 12 second motor wouldn't help me against you. You wouldn't get around the club spin with a 12 second motor. (laughs) Okay, so for every amazing comment that we got about Greg getting somebody into cycling or inspiring them through cycling in, you know, when they first began, there was a couple that were kind of calling Greg out and basically saying that it was all complete bull and that Greg did in fact dope and it was totally incredulous that he accused all of the other Tour de France competitors of doping, yet he was able to beat them. So one of them here from Jim White says, sitting there pretending he didn't dope, he's the dope. (laughs) This guy has to be from from Ireland because that's such an Irish thing to say. (laughs) Uh, Did Greg dope? He didn't test positive in a like, unless there's someone, a teammate that's come forward, I find it a little bizarre that no teammates have come forward, no ex-managers have come forward and implicated Le Monde on dope. And maybe I'm a romantic, maybe it was the, as in my second interview with Greg, not to spoiler alert on it, but Greg points to that moment in 1991 when he comes back and gets seventh in the tour as the moment that cycling went high octane. And it started using EPO. Dope and don't forget has been going on. I don't know my master's on doping in sports, which traced a lot of the origins of it. 
gladiators were doping back in Roman times in the Colosseum fighting each other. Doping isn't something that's new. People have always looked for ways to cheat when there's incentives to win. So when we talk about doping, we're really talking about high octane doping. And that's been the advent of testosterone, human growth hormone and uh, EPO. And that's around 91, a lot of people say. Yeah, that's it. Like really, really putting the rocket fuel under it. Another commenter said, he's the only man in history of pro cycling that never cheated in any way, shape or form. K, think a little bit of sarcasm there. So he definitely does have his doubters. Well, that's a ridiculous comment. Who wrote that? <laughs> Just a few stupid comments. I can't even pronounce this. Donald Sminsky, 6535. Like, to run that one to its natural conclusion, he's saying that every single professional cyclist ever doped. Which we know is absolutely not true. There's so many cyclists who lost out or who quit their pro cycling careers because they had, you know, had seen this happening or being pressurized to put this in. But I know guys 100% that won big races at the highest level that didn't dope. 100% factually never took anything. So bullshit. You call bullshit on that. Okay, the next bit I want to move on for and this, everyone has an opinion. As uh, somebody said here, opinions are like, Holes. Everyone has one. But a lot of people have, and I'm going to put this under, I wish you'd asked him. Some people thought that you'd come down a little bit lightly on him. I think you've explained really well that there was a lot of information. That was like a 90 minute podcast and he was coming at you with like unheard of information before. You can't before. be prepared for it all. Like. <laughs> right. So Frank Ducky 6130 says, I wish you'd asked him more questions about the 1991 tour. He finished seventh in that race. Was he implying everyone who finished ahead of him was cheating? I think that's a nice place for us to end this reaction video because... That's what part two of the interview is about. The part one was a 90-minute conversation where you can only cover so much in 90 minutes because I wanted to push past the superficial. We wanted to push past the stories everyone had heard before and get to how he felt in those moments. And I think we've done that, by and large, quite well. And, you know, over a million people tuned into that first interview, which was amazing across all platforms. So the natural constraints of that meant we could only push so far and cover so much. And that's why Le Monde is back for a part two where we go into everything we didn't cover in part one. Last Tour de France win, world title, 1991, and then the transition into post-career. And this is another, it's a bumper one. It's over two hours for part two. So I've listened to the to it in its entirety. I didn't even know that. Yeah, and it's um, it's it's incredible. There's some, <laughs> there's some shocking moments as well, but I think in the interview, he actually starts really at ground zero with his cycling, coming off the ski slopes using, using cycling for his off season and then just being kind of a bit of a talent at it and it kind of snowballing from there. And his first times coming to Europe and really the the setups, the crap setups he had to deal with, landing at airports, didn't know who was picking him up, how he was going to eat. He said he had like $5 in his pocket. So he was really at the mercy of people kind of taking care of him just as a young fella. I, I find that absolutely fascinating. I think that there's going to be a part three, four, five, six, seven <laughs> with Le Mans because I think you and him kind of have a little bit of a thing going on. So yeah. If you haven't checked out the full interview with Greg LeMond, part one, definitely go back and check that out. I'm going to stick a link to it up in the top corner and then we'll be back for part two with Greg LeMond in the coming weeks. Sarah, thanks for chatting. You're welcome.